Welcome to this week's podcast from the Equipping Center. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Jacob Biswell. We're so thankful for your name, Jesus. The only name by which man can be saved. We're thankful for your name this morning. That when we say that name, Jesus, sickness is healed. When we say that name, Jesus, demons flee. We thank you for your name this morning, Jesus. We glorify you in this place. We magnify you. I thank you, Father, for the anointing this morning that breaks every yoke of bondage. We thank you, Father, that there is freedom in this house. Father, I thank you for the anointing that makes preaching easy. I thank you that when I reach my hands out this morning, that it would be your handprint that was left. There would be evidence that you've been in this place. Father, I thank you that your word would go forth to accomplish that which you send it to do. You alone are able, God. We worship you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Hallelujah. Isn't it good to be in the house of God this morning? Amen. Well, a couple of you feel that way. I'm glad about that. So good to see our friend Kim. Welcome home. This is always your home. All the way here from Kentucky. It's like a different world, I'm sure. Well, listen, we're starting a new series this morning on Nehemiah, and uh, I estimate it will take 11 weeks. We'll see. Um, I have quite a bit that the Lord's been speaking to me out of the book of Nehemiah, and so if you will turn in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to go right through uh, the whole book over the next few weeks or months uh, with a few breaks in between, Uh, but Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're As we study the book of Nehemiah, I believe that we are going to learn things that will help us personally. Uh, We'll discover principles that will guide us as we move into a time of building here at the Equipping Center. We are in a season of building, and uh, we're going to, I believe, end up understanding a critical part of Old Testament history. Uh, The book of Nehemiah is, is really an incredible book, I think, that often gets overlooked. And so we're going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 11, then we're going to break it down. All right, from verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Aren't you glad that names are a little more simple these days? Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity about Jerusalem. They said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept, and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, And have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word 
which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, You are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who do who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. We're going to break it down this morning, but I have a little bit of a test for you at the beginning of this message. Okay, I'm going to ask you a few questions. Who was the greatest greatest comedian in the Bible? Samson, he brought the house down. Who was the greatest male financier in the Bible? Noah, he was floating his stock while everyone else was in liquidation. These are dad jokes this morning, y'all. Who was the greatest female financier? Pharaoh's daughter, she went down to the bank of the Nile and drew out a little profit. Who is the greatest babysitter mentioned in the Bible? David. He rocked Goliath to a very deep sleep. And finally, in context, who is the shortest man in the Bible? Nehemiah. All right, that's enough bad jokes for today. I read those this week, and because it mentioned Nehemiah, I thought this is a good way to start the message. For those of you who did not find it funny, I apologize sincerely. All right, this morning we're kicking off this 11-part message based on the book of Nehemiah that we're calling A Time to Build. Nehemiah, I think, is one of the greatest characters of the Old Testament, but perhaps not as well-known as others. And I'd like to give you an assignment this morning. I'm giving you homework as we kick off this series. I want you to read the trilogy Um, beginning with the book of Esther. And I want you to read with the book of Esther uh, and go through that book and you're going to discover how God first began to move in the midst of Israel's captivity by raising up Esther, a young Jewish maiden, to the throne in Persia. Because here's why it's so key. It was her husband, Artaxerxes, who Nehemiah approaches as the king in the book of Nehemiah. And so when you understand that, so I want you then to read the book of Ezra, which is in the Hebrew Bible, is linked with the book of Nehemiah. So uh, Jewish uh, people, when they study Nehemiah, they study it combined with Ezra. It's the same book. There's no separation there. And so I want you to read Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Uh, And after you've finished Ezra, jump into Nehemiah and read it carefully. Because I'm excited about what I believe God is going to teach us as we travel through this book of Nehemiah. I believe, as I said, we're going to learn things personally. We're going to discover some principles that I believe God is going to have us live by as we are in this season of building at the equipping center. And I believe we'll end up understanding a critical part of Old Testament history. So before we jump back in and really break down Nehemiah, I want to give you some history this morning. So I'm kind of putting on my teacher hat this morning before I get into the crux of the message. So I want to set the historical context. If we jump all the way back 
to Genesis chapter 12, God called Abram to leave his country and to follow him to another land. So we, we know that story well. Abraham packs up, he leaves, and his descendants are multiplied. The Israelites are later enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years, and God calls them out under, under the leadership of Moses. So there's this great exodus, and eventually they're allowed to enter the land of Canaan. Hundreds of years pass where the nation experiences struggles, faithlessness, this wrestling with God, and the high point of Israel's history comes under King David. I mean, the nation is just absolutely flourishing. For 40 years, David expands the nation of Israel, both in breadth of influence and this return to the knowledge of God. And Israel is flourishing. And then things go downhill. After his son, King Solomon, died, Israel was split into two kingdoms. And this is essential for us to understand when we get to the book of Nehemiah that there are two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom of ten tribes, and that's the nation of Israel. The other two tribes are sent to the south, and that's the nation of Judah. And because of their disobedience, the Assyrians destroy Israel. And they are what are now called the lost ten tribes of Israel. So those tribes are scattered. I mean, they're just almost obliterated. And even though the southern tribes were not obliterated, so Judah still remains in this time, they still continue in their disobedience. You would think they would watch their brothers in the north get destroyed and go, we're going to serve the Lord. But isn't that our human nature, right? We can watch everyone else's mistakes and go, oh, I'm not going to make those same mistakes. And then we repeat them. And so in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army capture the Jews Jerusalem's destroyed, the walls are knocked down, and the temple is burned. And the people were deported, and they were forced into slavery yet again. And their history had come full circle. Here's Jerusalem, left in ruins yet again. I can't imagine the trauma for the Jewish people at this time to see Jerusalem left in ruins. I mean, here it is. They're forced to leave their homeland. They're sent about a thousand miles away to a foreign country. Many of God's prophets had predicted this would happen. They had prophesied that even though they would be led in captivity, it would not destroy their nation. And this is because God had a plan. And so eventually it would end and the people would be allowed to go back home. Daniel understood this as he was reading the book of Jeremiah. When we look at the beautiful history of the nation of Israel, there is so much to be said because God did not forsake his people. He allowed the Persians to take over the Babylonians. And so he moves King Cyrus in to make a decree for the return of the Jews. And in about three stages, over about a hundred years, they return to Jerusalem. And they're living there, but it's dangerous, it's difficult, it's sorrowful. And so about 50,000 of them returned to Judah with Zerubbabel, and they began rebuilding the temple. Unfortunately, as is the story of Israel, they got discouraged and they quit. So God sent them the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to encourage them to finish the project. Ezra was also sent to help restore their spiritual fervor. And finally, Nehemiah shows up on the scene. God had raised up Esther. She marries Artaxerxes. And here is Nehemiah who comes onto the scene. And, and see, here is the really neat thing about the Persians. They weren't so much interested in having a whole bunch of foreigners in their land. So they would send them back to their countries 
and have them rebuild where they were from as long as they continue to pay their taxes. And so this is what's happening is that uh, we, we start this and through Nehemiah, God instigates this incredible return to Jerusalem. And so this, this book, the book of Nehemiah, has about three parts to it. And that's what we're going to break down over the next 11 weeks is the first six chapters cover the rebuilding of the wall. And this is where we start in our story. And then chapters 7 through 10 deal with the renewing of Jerusalem's worship with the final chapters addressing revival. And I believe that this is principles that God is calling us as a church to live by uh, as we are in this season of building. And so where we're going to start in this, this series is looking at Nehemiah's prayer. And we're going to look at knowing how to pray, the process of prayer. See, Nehemiah's public life was the outflow of his personal life. I'm going to say that again. Nehemiah's public life was the outflow of his personal life, which was steeped in, it was shaped by a lifestyle of prayer. Prayer was the crux of of how Nehemiah operated. It's like Pastor Susanna said, prayer is the engine of the church. And when we understand the principles of prayer here, I believe it's going to transform some of the ways that we pray. Nehemiah knew that only ventures that are begun in prayer and bathed in prayer throughout are likely to succeed. So let's jump back to the first four verses. And if Amber, you'll pull those first four up again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. That Hanani, one of my brothers and some men from Judah came and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We were to jump to verse 11, we'd understand who Nehemiah was. He was the cupbearer to the king. If he was going to have any job in, in the kingdom, this was a pretty risky one because he had to taste everything the king was about to drink. So if it had been poisoned, Nehemiah's done. But at the same time, this was a, an incredible place because he had intimate access to royalty. He had great standing with the king. The king trusted Nehemiah with his life. And, and at this time, Nehemiah would have had a place to live in the palace. It was a job that provided everything he needed. And yet when one of his brothers returned from a road trip to Jerusalem, verse 2 says that Nehemiah questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. This word question means, it means to intently seek an answer. Here is Nehemiah, who has the best job essentially in the kingdom. He's serving the king. He's in this place and he could have insulated himself. He had chosen to. He could have ignored Jerusalem. He could have lived out his life just doing what was great at the time. He's living in the palace, but there was something burning 
on the inside of him. Nehemiah had this concern. And that's our first point this morning in learning how to pray is that we've got to have a concern about the problem. There's got to be something on the inside of us that intently seeks an answer, that Nehemiah questioned what was happening. He sought them out and wanted to hear the firsthand report. This is an important starting point for us. It's so easy for us to stay uninvolved and unaware. Some of us don't even think about stuff that's going on in our own lives. It's easier just to ignore our own lives, let alone think about our community, to take time to investigate what's happening around us, to investigate what is happening in the lives of others. And even though Nehemiah, listen, Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. He had never been to that great city. He had never seen the sights. He he had never experienced Jerusalem in its full glory. Yet on the inside of him, there was this burning and this questioning. What is happening in Jerusalem? What is happening in the city of God? And so he had heard stories and, and he knew that his ancestors had been led away in chains when Babylon destroyed it. Was destroyed it. But Jeremiah 51.50 says this. If you'll pull that up, Amber. It says this. You who have escaped the sword, go, do not stay. Remember the Lord from far away and let Jerusalem come to your mind. Jeremiah prophesied to a people who would be in captivity. Don't just stay in your captivity. Don't just get comfortable. Remember where God has called you. And this is a challenge for us because sometimes we can get so comfortable in our captivity. We can get so comfortable in the place we are, we forget what is happening around us. We forget what God has called us to. That as believers, we are called to make disciples. We are called to impact our community. We're called to build the kingdom of God. And as he thought on Jerusalem, he listened to the report in verse 3 that the survivors were in great trouble and disgrace. He heard that the wall of Jerusalem was in shambles and that its gates had been burned with fire. And as he tried to imagine the shame in the city of David, he could hardly stand it. That phrase, great trouble, it means this. The people had broken down and were falling to pieces. The people were broken down and falling to pieces to pieces. Three words can summarize the bad news. The remnant, the ruin, and the reproach. Here was the great city of God, the place where David's throne had been. There's a remnant there, but it is ruined and there is a reproach. And Nehemiah was broken over the complacency of the people of Jerusalem. They were living in ruins and they had simply accepted it. They were willing to walk around the devastation instead of being concerned enough to do something about their situation. Church, nothing is ever going to change in your life, in the life of this church, or in our nation until we become concerned about the problem. Some of us have become complacent about the way life is going. You're living with rubble and it doesn't even bother you anymore. And the question is, are you ready to allow God to do some rebuilding? See, we can talk about 
building the church all day long, but unless you allow God to build your life, we will never be able to build the church because God takes people. We are those living stones. The church is built with living stones. So it goes on, and when he heard this report, he hit the ground and he began to weep in verse 4. That, that word weep is such an interesting word because it equates to the same weeping that Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Nehemiah hit the ground and began to weep, it means he began to travail. He began to shake with crying to the point that blood vessels would burst. Nehemiah was grieved for Jerusalem. It also says he fasted. In the Old Testament, fasting was only required once a year, but here we see that Nehemiah started his own fast. He began to refrain from food. In fact, we know comparing from the different dates in this book that he wept, he fasted, and prayed for four months. These are all signs of his humility and the show of his deep concern for the problem. And the question that we have to ask is, do we want God to rebuild our own lives so that we can help rebuild the lives of others? Are our defenses broken down such that we're allowing things back into our lives? Are there compromises in our lives? Are there things that we've allowed back in because we've just been defeated? But I want to tell you, that once you become concerned about the problem, the second thing that you have to have is conviction about God's character. See, after Nehemiah becomes concerned, he next expresses his conviction of God's character. Verse 5 says this, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant of love with those who love Him and obey Him, his commands. Nehemiah calls God the Lord. He recognizes the Lord is his master. And in verse six, he calls him the God of heaven. He acknowledged that his God was beyond the earthly realm and above all other gods. He next refers to him as great and awesome. See, there's this thing that when we can get a conviction about God's character, and you can begin to express God's character. It begins to get, you, you have to have the concern about the problem. But listen, you in and of yourself cannot fix the problem. You can't build Jerusalem's wall on your own. You can't rebuild your own life. You have to have conviction about God's character. And so Nehemiah shifts his attention. He weeps for the problem, but then he shifts his attention back to God. And he begins to acknowledge God's character. He begins to speak of who God is. And because of his conviction about God's character, Nehemiah knew that not only was God able, but he was also willing to respond to his prayer. So you need to understand God is willing and able to respond to the rebuilding of your life. He is willing and able to respond to the cry. Job writes in 42, 5 and 6, he says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dusts and ashes. See, this is what happens is we can have concern for a problem. 
But when we turn our affection towards the Lord, we begin to recognize who God is. And then just like Job, once we get into the mirror of who God is, we begin to reflect on that. God then begins to examine us. And this is the part where most people stop. Most people will get concerned about a problem. They will talk about the problem. They will share the problem with everyone around them. We've got to fix this thing. and God can do it. And then what God does is He goes, now I'm going to work on you. And so Nehemiah steps into our third step, which is a confession of sin. After becoming concerned about the problem, and expressing his conviction about God's character, Nehemiah is now moved to admit his sin and the sins of his people. We can read this in verse 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. See, it's one thing to be concerned about the problem and to have a firm conviction of who God is, but it's another thing to actually confess. As I said before, we, many of us never get this far. We might feel bad about our sins or be concerned about how things are going. Our theology may even be correct. We know things are bad and that God is good, but we hesitate at this next step because it forces us to deal with the things that have broken down our walls. See, Nehemiah boldly asks God to hear his prayer, which which literally means this. God, with everything in you, turn your ear towards me. Let me have your full attention, God. And I see three things that are key ingredients in the confession of his sin. First is intensity. Overwhelmed by concern about sin and in awe of God's character, Nehemiah gave himself to prolonged petition and intercession. He prayed day and night, spending every moment of time in God's presence. This is very similar to Psalm 88.1 where we read, O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. There was integrity, I mean intensity here. But there was honesty as well. Nehemiah makes no attempt to excuse the Israelites for their sin. And he actually owned his part in their culpability. He surveyed the grim record of Israel's past and present failures. And he knew that he was not exempt from blame. Notice that he prays, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself. We have acted very wickedly. We have not obeyed. This is remarkable to me. It would be easy for Nehemiah to blame everyone else. God, those people in Jerusalem, they've done it all. I've just served the king. I've been honest. I've been integrous. But he, he takes account and he even blames himself. It's easy for us to blame others, isn't it? We need to learn from Nehemiah and confess honestly, Lord, I'm wrong. I not only want to be part of the answer, I confess that I am part of the problem. I think this is one of the issues that has plagued our nation in the last year is everyone is pointing fingers at everybody else. 
It's the Republicans' fault. It's the Democrats' fault. It's the scientists' fault. It's the masks' fault. It's their fault. It's their fault. It's their fault. No, God, I take responsibility for the sins of my nation. I stand in the gap like Nehemiah. I rest in your promises, but God, I will find myself at your throne, repenting of what I need to repent of, taking ownership of my city, taking ownership of my church, taking ownership of of my family. I will stand in the gap. And the third thing is I will have urgency. Nehemiah recognized that sin is not merely a stubborn refusal to obey certain rules, but it is a defiant act of aggressive personal rebellion against a holy God. Sin is not just a disobedience against rules. When we sin willfully and knowingly, we are committing an act of personal defiance against a holy God. And there was an urgency. He knows that they have acted very wickedly and he doesn't try to candy coat his sins. He owned it and called what it was. I remember a few years ago reading this story about these guys who worked in an airport and they decided they were going to steal one of the life rafts. They were going to take it down the river. And I think it was the Stillaquamish River. So they stole it from the 747. And so when they took the raft out on the river, they were quite surprised to find that a helicopter was over them because what they didn't realize is that when you blow up one of those life rafts, there's a tracking device attached to it that automatically dispatches the police to try and find the the life raft. See, how often do we think that we can do something in secret and God will hone in on it? God will send helicopters. Trying to hide our sins from God is impossible. He knows all about them. Numbers 32.23 says this, you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Church, we need to recognize that all sin, those things we have blatantly done or carelessly committed, or those things that we have left undone, we must identify and confess. It's better to confess now than to wait till your sin exposes you. But here's what happens is that when we confess our sins, what does the Bible say? He's faithful to forgive us. And that gives us point number four, confidence in God's promises. While Nehemiah spends time in broken confession, he doesn't spend prolonged time navel gazing. See, having grown up Pentecostal, that was one of the things we were taught early on, navel gaze. Stare inside, find every sin, find things that might even be sin. Find things that could possibly be sin and confess those. Not talking about that. Not talking about always looking introspectively, trying to find everything you've done wrong. What I am talking about is going before the Lord, allowing Him to inspect you. Allowing Him, allowing His character to become a mirror that you look in to see if it lines up. But there's confidence in God's, prom- in pr- God's promises. See, he owns what he did wrong, and then he quickly expresses confidence in God's promises. In verses 8 through 10, it says this, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's what happened, right? To to the northern tribes. They were scattered. But then we get to verse 9. But if you return to me 
and keep my commandments and do them. Those of you who have been scattered were in the most repart, most remote part of the heavens. I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants, your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. And as part of his prayer, Nehemiah recalls the words of Moses about the danger of Israel's apostasy and the promise of divine mercy. His words are a skillful mosaic of great Old Testament promises. And quotes, I mean, it, he kind of pulls quotes from Leviticus, from Deuteronomy, from 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and even Psalm 130. Nehemiah knows the word. He's got it in him. What was the promise Nehemiah was getting at? It was twofold. First, if Israel disobeyed, they'd be sent to a foreign land. That happened. That had been fulfilled. The second part was that when captivity was over, God would send them back to Jerusalem. They were still waiting for that to be fulfilled. Nehemiah prayed, Lord, the first part is true. We disobeyed. We're in captivity. But Lord, you made a promise. You made a promise to bring us back home and protect us there. And that has not happened yet. I'm claiming your promise that you'll make that happen. Someone calculated there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible. The better we know the Word of God, the better we can pray with confidence. 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. My question is, are you as confident as Nehemiah was? Are you as confident in God's promises as he was? If God said it in His Word, you can believe it. Nehemiah knew God would keep His covenant of love with His people. He also knew that even though God did not need His help, he was ready to make a commitment to get involved. And that's point number five, is that there's a commitment to get involved. Do you see the progression in Nehemiah's prayer? His concern about the problem led him to brokenness. While he was weeping and fasting, he expressed conviction about God's character. As he focused on the greatness and the awesomeness of his holy God. He was quickly reminded of his own wickedness and therefore cried out in confession. After owning his role in the nation's depravity, he prayed boldly and with confidence in God's promises. And this then leads him to a commitment to get involved. We see in verse 11, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. It has been said that prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but getting God's will done on earth. That's what prayer is. Is that we are bringing God's will into the earth. However, for God's will to be done on earth, He needs people to be available for Him to use. While Nehemiah was praying, his burden for Jerusalem became greater and his vision of what needed to be done became clearer. He didn't pray for God to send someone else. I think way too often we're like, God, send the laborers. Send the laborers. God, bring in the harvesters. But Nehemiah prays this, Lord, send me. He knew that he would have to approach the king 
and we'll talk about this later in the series, and request a three-year leave of absence. He's going to go to Artaxerxes. He's having an Esther moment for such a time as this. He's going to the king, and he's saying, King, I know I've been your right-hand man. I know I'm the one who drinks the poison, but I need a three-year leave. I don't think any of our bosses would ever say yes to that. And so he asked God for success, which means to, this is what that word success, I love this word in the Hebrew. It means to break out and move forward. To break out and to move forward. He wanted to see God break out on his behalf when he goes in front of the king to make his request. He was claiming yet another promise from Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course where he pleases. Someone has said that the key word in this book is the word so. It occurs 32 times in the book of Nehemiah. 32 times. Again and again, Nehemiah assesses the situation, is moved to concern, and so is compelled to action. The true measure of our concern is whether or not we're willing to make a commitment to get involved. Martin Luther said this, pray as if everything depends on God, then work as if everything depends on you. As I close this morning, reminds me of a story I read once of a college choir who was all set to present a concert in a large church, and it was set to be carried by a local radio station when everything appeared to be ready. The announcer made his final introduction and waited for the choir director to begin. The tenor was not yet ready, however, so the director refused to raise his baton. All this time, nothing but silence was being broadcast. Growing very nervous, the announcer, forgetting that his microphone was still on and that he could be heard in the church and on the air, said in exasperation, Get on with it, you old goat! I think that's what the Lord's saying to some of us this morning. Is that we've been standing and we've been waiting for God to do something. And God's saying to TEC, let's get on with it. But here's what's really neat. Later in the week, the radio station got a letter from one of its listeners. A man who had tuned in to listen to the music from the comfort of his easy chair. When he heard, get on with it, you old goat, he took the message personally. He had been doing nothing to further God's work. And this startling message was enough to convict him and get him going again. Sometimes we need a wake-up call, don't we? Maybe you've received that call this morning. God is saying to you, get on with the old goat or young goat. Whichever you prefer. But where are you in this prayer process right now? Are you concerned about your problems? Do you have a conviction about God's holy character? Are you ready to confess your sins? Do you have a confidence in God's problem, in God's promises? Are you ready to make a commitment to get involved in God's kingdom work? I want to say to you, you can do that by committing to be involved in our Time to Build campaign. I'm going to be talking about building for the next 11 weeks. Not just because we want to build, but because I believe God's called us to build. We'll talk more about that Friday night at our family business meeting. We're going to talk about a lot of how we can impact our community. 
how we can impact our church, how we can impact our neighborhood. We're asking God to build out through prayer and evangelism. We're asking God to build up through instruction, discipleship, ministry, worship, and carrying our emphasis this year will be seeking God's direction to see every service full with plans to expand in the future. We're also asking God to build on by preparing us for a commitment to the addition of a children's facility in the back. Here are a few ideas that you can implement. Number one, commit to praying. Commit to praying. Number two, attend the family business meeting. And number three, become a builder in 2021. Church, it's time to build. But I believe this morning it's also a time to rebuild. When we have the courage to admit that we've messed up, when we become concerned enough about the way we've been living and we confess our sins, we know that God will do His rebuilding work. He's promised to do so. So again, we're going to be talking about building the church, but this morning, I want you to, to figure out where you are in these five steps. Number one, are you concerned about your problems? You just have no concern about what's going on. I want to pray for you this morning. Number two, do you have a conviction? Can I get some more music, please? It's, it's like gone. Do you have a conviction about God's holy character? Are you ready to confess your sins? Do you have confidence in God's promises? Are you ready to make a commitment to get involved in God's kingdom work? If any of those apply to you this morning, we're going to open the altars in just a minute. Will you stand this morning? Greatest privilege I ever have is giving the invitation to make Jesus your Lord. It's the call of the believer is to introduce people to Jesus. So this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus, perhaps you're in that place where you're far from Him. You felt like you knew Him at one time, but maybe you don't this morning. If any of that applies to you, in just a moment, we're going to pray together. But I want to say to you that God is rich in mercy. That's what Ephesians 2 says. He's a God rich in mercy. He's able to rescue us from our sin. So this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to be, in just a moment, we're going to pray together. This prayer doesn't save you. It's a great entry point into a life with Jesus. We're going to pray that together. Maybe you prayed that at some point in your life, but you feel like this morning, I'm far from Him. I don't feel like I'm close to Him anymore. And I want to be. With every head bowed and every eye closed. If that fits you this morning, either of those categories, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you have and you feel like you're just so far from Him, you don't know Him anymore. If that's you, I'm going to ask that you raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you in just a moment. If you're watching online this morning, You've never made a decision for Jesus. I just want you to type Jesus into that chat box. We're going to pray this prayer together this morning. Church, will you pray with us? Jesus, today I repent of my sin. I choose to make you Lord. I'm sorry, God, for the things I've done that have caused distance between you and I. I need your presence this morning. I want you to be part of my life. 
I want you to be my whole life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. To stay connected, follow us on Instagram or Facebook or visit www.equippingcenter.us.